Tony Katz. It's Kendall and Casey. The Amber and Nigel Show. All right, well, when does your show start? Do we know? I feel like I've been promoting this for nine years now. This is the Tony Kinnett Cast on 93 WIPC. Good evening and welcome to the Tony Kinnett Cast here on 93 WIBC, 93.1 FM out of Indianapolis, as well as on the podcast and live streaming services at youtube.com slash WIBC and Twitter X. It's a very weird day in American politics for a lot of reasons. First of all, President Biden shuffled off to Marine One this morning as he wraps up his long weekend at the Delaware Beach House. For those of you who are keeping track, and you know I do, this means 442 days or just under 40% of his presidency, he has spent on vacation. Uh, Given that the president of the United States is trying to shuffle between being on vacation and embarrassing himself on camera, things are really not looking good in the presidential race uh, for the Democrats. Now, that said, that does not translate to things looking good for the Republicans in the congressional 2024 race and there's a lot to dig into regarding that and don't worry we'll get to it but first the white house is still very 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 angry that people are asking questions about what happens when biden isn't on vacation and is on camera mainly that the president stops talking and starts talking about world leaders that have either passed away or are in completely different countries Uh, at a time when the special counsel robert hur's report confirmed that the president is extremely bad when it comes to mental coherence, the president of the United States seems to be going out of his way, which is impressive, uh, to embarrassing himself, whether in conversations with foreign leaders, whether he's giving news conferences regarding foreign policy, economic policy, or the political situation both at the United States heartland and at the southern border. Things are not looking good. But the White House is really angry. The media are still talking about it. So according to New York Times publisher A.G. Sulzberger, Monday, the White House said that they are, quote, extremely upset, end quote, about uh, the New York Times coverage on President Joe Biden's age. Um, but they have assured us that uh, they're going to continue reporting on the situation uh, because it is in the best interest of the Democrats at this point to basically post every single moment of President Biden's ailing memory and say, well, well, Trump's just as bad. The issue is that's not entirely going to work. And the reason that's not going to work, we'll get to in just a second. But there are more explosive international events. And of course, by explosive international events, I mean Hamas and Hezbollah. Hezbollah is exploding today as Israel has launched a wave of attacks against the Hezbollah terrorists in Lebanon. And uh, we got a little bit of footage about it. So here's what that looks like. So if you aren't watching on the live stream that noise that you heard were people driving by a mushroom cloud because uh, Hezbollah has been storing up weapons, everything from missiles to uh, local explosives, even things like frag grenades and fuel, believe it or not, in the same depots. And I thought they were just going to forever be able to launch things into Israel at a moment's notice. And finally tired of all of the missiles flying over its northern border and striking its citizens, Israel is eliminating some of those threats. Here's a hot tip for all of you individuals out there looking for storing tips before spring cleaning. Uh, Don't store all of your flammables and explosives together. 
especially if you are a uh, genocidal terrorist. You, you might find out uh, from an individual that you prefer not to find out from. Uh, I do enjoy looking at a lot of the media coverage regarding the Israeli uh, Hamas and Hezbollah conflict, because as A.G. Hamilton pointed out this afternoon, if you rely on mainstream press for coverage of the Gaza war, you will inevitably conclude that there's no war. It's just Israel bombing random people. Hamas now says that 6,000 of their fighters have been killed. Israel estimates 12,000. U.S. intelligence is somewhere in the realm of eight to 12,000, depending on who you ask. But any news article that you'll read, whether it's Reuters, whether it's AP, whether it's Al Jazeera, even to the local newspapers in the Indy Star, they only talk about the uh, Gaza Strip civilians that they claim are getting mown down. So what it looks like in this war is that Israel is just walking in with uh, M240 saw machine guns and just mowing down the civilian population. No, that's that's what Hamas did on October 7th when they paraglided into that music festival and mowed down and uh, killed a lot of innocent people and, of course, raped the ones that they didn't kill. Israel, who has consistently sent messages begging people to go to specific areas um, to try to surrender to Israeli forces if they are starving, if they are concerned for their safety. Um, In which case, by the way, if Hamas catches you trying to surrender to Israeli forces, we have now five separate videos of uh, Gazan civilians being shot in the back as they try to uh, accept help from the Israelis, which, by the way, that's the only place that help is going to come from, given that every single cent, every single crumb, every drop of water in the form of international aid is confiscated by the Hamas terror network and is hoarded from the civilians. So as far as this war is, is going, I know there are certain pundits out there who claim that the United States needs to intervene as though America is the father of the world and stop Israel and, and Hamas from fighting. Uh, but I will remind absolutely everyone of the most tried and true lesson regarding a bully. Um, a bully will only mess around with you until you actually do fight back and eliminate the threat. And that is what we are witnessing in regard to the Israeli peacekeeping forces at the moment. And if you're expecting me to feel uh, sorry for people who would very much like to kill me and everyone in my family as well, well, shucks, I'm afraid you're just going to have to go somewhere else. Speaking of going somewhere else, Trump's court cases. Uh, It seems like the Trump campaign is hitting loss after loss after loss in court. And uh, these are civil trials. So judges in New York are saying, oh, Trump, you know, inflated some business numbers or, oh, Trump defamed somebody. And he's been ordered to pay hundreds of millions of dollars now. And there's a little bit of an issue for the general voting electorate in this country. And that is most people don't care that Donald Trump is now going through court case after court case and being ordered to cough up huge sums of money. It's not turning voters wildly towards the Democrat camp like Democrats had hoped. It's also not helping that in the midst of the most recent criminal fraud trial or or civil fraud trial in which Donald Trump is ordered to pay hundreds of millions of dollars to the state of New York and is not allowed to operate in business uh, in New York for a number of years. Deutsche Bank, among others, testified in favor of Trump. And basically said that uh, they actually knew how much Trump had when they loaned him money. And uh, every single billionaire and millionaire out there basically gives you the best estimate of what they're worth when they're going for a loan, just like every single person on earth does when you go to the bank and you ask for a loan. You present the best image of yourself to the loan officer. 
And uh, everyone who came and testified, even some that the prosecution brought to testify, were like, yeah, that's not a crime. And the New York judge ruled in favor of Trump coughing up a lot of money anyway. We bring all of that up because uh, Trump actually isn't as broke as as everyone imagined. Uh, According to a possible merger, Trump might be getting about $4 billion in assets. And so Trump wouldn't be as broke as everyone is guessing. Now, now why do I bring all of that up right now? Why is this all at the forefront of the, the entire electoral process right now? This isn't for the Democrats, believe it or not. This is for the Republicans, because right now there are three factions of Republicans that are vying for control in this country. You have the kind of establishment old guard Republicans uh, who kind of follow the very loose leaf standard governance, you know, stick it in and it applies anywhere, fund a lot of big government projects and just kind of keep the status quo quiet. You have traditional conservatives and then you have very pro-Trump populists who are aggravated at the state of the country and are basically willing to do whatever politically in order to remove those woes. Populism always pops up in history when those situations are present. Well, the problem is that the neoconservative groups, the establishment groups, the old guard, whatever you want to call them, are very, very upset that more people don't care that Donald Trump is being hit repeatedly in finances. And we're going to talk about why that's weird up and coming. But first, we need to talk a little bit about a straw poll that happened in Henry County, of all places, on this last Saturday. A lot of people have a lot of opinions about this straw poll. And I got to tell you, most of them are wrong. Stick around. You are listening to the Tony Kennecast here on 93 WIBC. Listening to the Tony Kennett Cast on 93 WIPC. Good evening and welcome back to the Tony Kennett Cast here on 93 WIBC. So, over the weekend, uh, I went to a straw poll. So, a straw poll has a lot of different definitions and uh, a lot of different connotations uh, regarding what kind of goes on. So allow me to explain. The Indiana 6th Congressional District, which is just in your mind's eye, eastern central Indiana, uh, hosted a straw poll in which the Indiana gubernatorial candidates were invited to come to speak and get a few questions answered. And uh, precinct committee members would come and cast their votes for who they would choose in the Indiana uh, gubernatorial Republican primary and then who they would choose in the Indiana uh, or who they would choose uh, for the presidential GOP primary. And I walked in. Interesting uh, place to hold it, considering it was the high school where I actually um, started teaching. Uh, it was actually really weird. The, the the students who were on the the wall, like they feature seniors and things, were actually students I had my my first year there. So it was kind of a, a really cool feeling of whiplash because I do love Eastern Central Indiana. It's where I grew up. I'm very passionate about the communities there, and I like to think of myself as never really having fit in among a lot of the elites at a lot of, of universities. That I've always just kind of been a, a common Hoosier. Uh, And that's usually the group of individuals that I feel most at home with. So we file in on this very cold, icy February morning into the Knightstown High School Auditorium. And Nate Lamar, who is running this event and a uh, Henry County GOP guy, 
explains how the straw poll is going to work. The precinct committee men were all going to uh, be in this room with also some of the locals, about 100, over 100 people there. And they were going to listen to statements from the gubernatorial candidates who showed up. And then they were going to ask some questions. You write a question on a card. And then Nate Lamar was going to go through those questions. And he was going to find the most popular questions and then ask those candidates. And then we were going to watch the vote. And then that vote was going to be followed by a tally, the very first straw poll in the 2024 election cycle. So what followed was a very, very weird line of speaking from the candidates present. So, so, so the candidates present were Mike Braun, senator uh, from Indiana, uh, Suzanne Crouch, the current lieutenant governor, Eric Doden, uh, former attorney general Curtis Hill, Jamie Rettenauer, and then uh, who didn't show up, Brad Chambers. And uh, everyone who hears the name Brad Chambers outside of the Donut Counties goes, who? Because uh, no one knows who he is. He's a Chamber of Commerce guy. Actually, here's how you'll know who Brad Chambers is. You know that guy who texts your dad? Like really weird, like political spam texts no one asked for? Yeah, that that's Brad Chambers. Okay, moving on. So it was a very strange straw poll because it didn't at all turn out the way that a lot of people expected right now according to an internal poll released by braun's campaign in january braun is holding 40 percent of the votes followed by suzanne crouch and then hill and and so on and so forth how it actually turned out of the 47 precinct committeemen that voted mike braun only garnered eight votes whereas suzanne crouch came away with 19 curtis hill at 16 followed by Doden with three and Jamie Rettenauer at one. And what we ended up seeing was something completely different than the political commercials have been advertising over the last couple of weeks and months. Because this gubernatorial campaign, by the way, is already a very low bar. Like the, the actual Indiana gubernatorial race has been incredibly boring for like the last 12 to 18 years. I mean, just a big yawn, all things considered. But in this particular race, everyone expected Braun to, or in this particular poll, everyone expected Braun to come out and be really energetic and kind of lead the field and everyone else stand in his wake. And that didn't happen. Braun was exhausted. He did not perform well. He answered questions well. He's a conservative senator, kind of fits along the same trend as Senator Mike Lee. He's not as loud and he's not as like kind of campaign driven, uh, but he's a good conservative senator as far as conservative senators go. And it confused everyone quite immediately because then Suzanne Crouch came out and she kind of hemmed and hawed about values and how she was from Evansville and she did agriculture and everyone kind of politely clapped and then Curtis Hill spoke uh, and it was very very interesting first of all Curtis Hill was the only guy who showed up in a suit and then Curtis Hill every time he spoke he commanded the stage and by the way, I'd like to remind you, I'm not supporting any of these candidates at all at the moment. None of them, I feel, have earned my vote. But Curtis Hill commanded every single question he was asked. He answered very forthwith. He made a very specific point. He punched at other candidates when it was appropriate, mainly Suzanne Crouch and Jamie Rettenauer. And it was incredible. Eric Doden kind of hemmed and hawed and couldn't really get to the point he was trying to make. And it seemed like he was kind of trying to marry establishmentarian and also kind of traditional conservative style policy. And there really wasn't a point to it. And then Jamie Rettenauer was an absolute lunatic. I, I've, I was asked by someone at my church about her a couple of months ago if I'd ever heard of her, and my answer was no, which is usually a very bad sign. 
And uh, I'd seen some advertisements about Jamie and like going after the goodness of Indiana. And she spoke and it was like watching an episode of the Looney. Actually, it was like watching an episode of Parks and Recreation. Every single time she was asked a question by the, the questions that were selected, she went on this long anecdote story that had nothing to do with the policy and started saying these very weird things about how Indiana was dancing on the devil with the dance floor and we needed to shut off the music to reach our spirit. It was like Marianne Williamson running for the Republican governor of Indiana. It was embarrassing. And the reason it was most embarrassing, and I say that, is because I am a conservative Christian and an independent fundamental Baptist. And Jamie Rittenauer walked around stage waving a worn Bible and acted like that gave her authority. And I was embarrassed for my denomination. I don't know what denomination she is, but as a Bible-believing Christian, anytime someone says, God called me to run, and then walks around embarrassing themselves on stage, that is the peak of populism. No substance, no policy plans, no direction for the state, just I'm angry about things. And everyone's like, okay, well, what are we going to do about it? And then her kind of saying, we just need to reach our goodness, man, was really embarrassing. More so embarrassing because she also said she didn't want to legalize marijuana, like none of the candidates did. But that's really neither here nor there. The big question that was asked that I was hit with constantly over social media when discussing this race was, did Suzanne Crouch, the lieutenant governor who served with Holcomb, serves with Eric Holcomb, the governor who completely screwed up the COVID-19 response, did she answer for her uh, actions or inactions during that administration? The answer is she answered the question. That was the first question that was asked is, how did Indiana handle COVID and what should we do differently? And Suzanne Crouch got up there and said, well, a lot of executives made some mistakes, but we can't look to the past. We have to look to the future. And then that was um, that was really her entire answer. It was dodging the question. And she started talking about mental health. So that was that question Hoosiers have wanted answers for for months. She gave a very politician's answer. Curtis Hill and Mike Braun both gave what I would argue were the right answers to the questions every time. The Indiana government sucks at managing money. By the way, Suzanne Crouch was like all in favor of big, huge billions of dollars with no transparency leap projects and what might have been the weirdest Freudian slip ever. Uh, Braun and Hill consistently gave the right answer, but Hill was enigmatic and bold and very concise, whereas Braun gave the right answer, but it was quieter. And again, he's tired. He's literally in the Senate fighting back McConnell and then coming to Indiana to run in this gubernatorial primary. So I can understand why he's exhausted. And as a result, it looks like Suzanne Crouch won 19, and then the rest of the vote was split between Curtis Hill and Mike Braun, and then a little bit Eric Doden, and like no one voted for Jamie Rittenauer. And the reason that I bring up this entire poll is to basically come to two specific points. Number one, in the general election, Suzanne Crouch is not splitting the conservative vote. Susan Crouch, if you actually uh, look below at the presidential race, Nikki Haley got 12 votes. Donald Trump got 35. Um, The one third of the precinct committeemen ish who voted for Nikki Haley also likely voted for Suzanne Crouch. The establishment vote in Indiana is going to vote for Suzanne Crouch very likely or Brad Chambers if he was there. Um, I do not believe that I see Crouch actually splitting Braun and Hill and then somehow pulling through in some kind of a sneak surprise victory. The race is going to either be Braun or Hill at this point. It's likely to be Braun because Braun raised like $2.1 million at this point so far, and Hill's raised less than 400000 
And that unfortunately does matter because they both agree on 85% of the policy. And so there was a moment on the stage where, you know, the old Greek idea that the, the God bleeds, meaning that Braun didn't win the, the particular primary or excuse me, this particular poll. But does Hill have the momentum to carry this through and actually win the primary? It depends. Because if we're talking about Louisiana or Virginia or Texas or Arizona even, then yeah. I mean, it doesn't just take money, but it takes bold and daring campaigning to win an election. But if we're talking about some of the more older establishment New Gingrich-style campaigning, then Braun's going to win based on money. And this all matters because of where the Indiana GOP is going. This entire gubernatorial election will decide unequivocally, undoubtedly, where the Indiana Republican Party goes for the next decade. And that's what we're going to talk about next. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to the Tony Kinnacast here on 93 WIBC. It's the Tony Kinnacast on 93 WIBC. Hey, hey, welcome back to the Tony Kinnacast here on 93 WIBC. The straw poll over the weekend, the very first one from the Indiana's 6th Congressional District, uh, brings out a really, really crucial thing that we need to discuss. We cannot get around it. And that is that this next gubernatorial election will decide how the Indiana GOP runs for the next 10 years. Allow me to explain. For a long time, the old guard or the, the more establishment slash corporatist style GOP candidates held a lot of sway. And so allow me to explain what an establishment kind of GOP candidate is, because there's, there's a lot of different labels as what makes someone establishment or whatever. An establishment GOP individual is very status quo on a lot of issues. So as far as fiscal conservatism goes, that is the norm here in the state of Indiana. And realistically a lot of establishment old guard and honestly a lot of elderly gop members in the state from courthouses to county councils are interested in using their power to maintain the status quo economically and this includes things that are not strictly conservative or libertarian so this includes funding very weird development projects that really should be left in the hands of private industry this includes things like very weird regulations that are kind of not like a party of small government and this also includes first and foremost staying absolutely away from social issues absolutely away from any kind of social issues and for a long time that worked because the democrat apparatus as far as media and activism is concerned has always been eager to call republicans the party of racism and homophobia and transphobia and super duper allegadecophobia and whatever and so they would go to the state house or they would go to the county offices and they would say hey i see you promoting this law is it because you're racist and they would say no and by avoiding social policy they could just kind of stay in power and also maintain really good relationships with donors and organizations like Indiana University who are incredibly left-wing, but as long as the Republicans actually don't talk about social issues that we disagree with, we'll continue to kind of give them money and assist their campaign and, and perhaps a cushy job after they retire, year after year after year. That's the establishment wing of the GOP. Now, it can be incredibly bad, and it can, can also be okay. Mitch Daniels, as governor stayed very far and well away from any kind of social issue which was bad but also governed pretty effectively the upside of establishment gop individuals is that they tend to have way more college education 
And they also tend not to freak out about things as early. And that cool, calm head does prevail, especially in economic policy. That's the first faction of the GOP that has had control of the Indiana GOP for at least 35 years. The next faction is traditional conservatives. And this is what individuals in the state probably would, I would say, side with the most as far as Republicans in the state of Indiana. Traditional conservatives believe in a set base of conservative principles that govern moral policy as well as economic policy. These things are usually forensically cited based on policies driven through the U.S. Constitution that are driven through articles of faith that are driven through uh events in history that are very easy to draw objective lines on and that creates subjective policy that's traditional conservatism then you have populists populists are the third faction that side with the gop although you find populists in any political movement populists are deeply dissatisfied with the current political apparatus they feel often as though they are being cheated and they may be right they feel as though everyone is out to get them at least everyone is out to demonize them and often they're right because populism arises in instances where people see that they are not given a fair shake. And so they say, fine, we'll just throw all of the people that aren't us out of power and we'll hop into power instead. And populism is not in and of itself a good thing and it is not in and of itself a bad thing. It is supposed to be a mechanism for propelling some kind of political ideology, but populism has in and of itself become a political ideology over the last decade, specifically with the the specifically with the kind of strange events surrounding Donald Trump. And so right now, what you actually have in this country are two groups. So you have the, the or right now in this GOP, you have two groups. You have the establishment group who are very wary of ever being called anything ever and who just want things to go the way that they've always gone. We've always done it this way. By the way, this is why when establishment GOP, especially in the Indiana State Legislature or local county council legislature talk about things, they cite previous law and past precedent like very recent stuff. It is a very long, drawn out way of saying, well, this is the way we've always done it, because that's the best way to just keep things quiet and we just keep things moving, which sometimes is effective. The problem is that the way that society is going culturally, economically and politically is in a way that consistently outmaneuvers establishment GOP members and also puts the average person who doesn't want to think about politics 24-7. It puts them, puts their families, puts their finances, puts their children, puts their faith, and puts their rights at risk. And so you've seen a resurgence, really since 2011, of traditional conservatism and now populism in the Indiana GOP system. The issue is that the establishment GOP did not give any of the floor space to traditional conservatism or to populism when it arose around 2015 and 2016 and really tightly held on to the power. There's just a problem with that. You get old and a lot of the establishment GOP are getting a lot older. And the only replacement for establishment GOP individuals are coming out of political science bachelor's degrees in colleges. And those that do graduate aren't often moving to Indiana. So the establishment GOP in Indiana is dying, both metaphorically and literally. And so they are losing control of the Indiana GOP as a party. The last couple of conventions have not gone the way of the Indiana establishment GOP. It's gone the way of the populace. And herein lies the lesson, ladies and gentlemen. Here's the secret, the rub. You need all three 
realistically, you, you don't need populism because it only arises when individuals are feeling cheated and screwed over. But you need both traditional conservatism's morality and common average everyman guidance. And you need establishment GOP realism and understanding with good financial governments to work together. You need both of them. Otherwise, you're done. If you just run with straight populism, which is where the party is going right now, because populists are so mad at not being given a voice in the current Indiana GOP space that they are ripping the party roots and all away from the establishment. They're holding on to it themselves. This is where Jamie Rittenauer comes from, by the way, who just gets up on stage and screams and says nonsense and expects people to clap. And it works really well at a rally and it works really poorly at the polls because guess what? You don't have any plans. I've seen school boards who have elected people based on populist principles who get into the office. They don't know the rules of order. They don't know the school's laws. They don't know precedent. They haven't read the Indiana Constitution. They haven't read the United States Constitution. And yet they're really passionate. They really care. You need both. You need both good governance and you need passion. Status quoism ain't working, folks. And people in Indiana aren't voting for it anymore. That's why Braun's really in the lead. That's why Hill is doing so well, despite having so little. People are tired of the Suzanne Crouch and before them, the Holcomb and before that. And like this constant line trotting backwards through history where it's just the status quo. And we'll just pretend that it'll work. Only the Indiana tax code is not getting better both in income and property taxes. The gas tax isn't getting better. Schools are getting worse in the state. Not for lack of trying. We keep shoveling money because that's what people lobby the Indiana establishment Republicans to do. The ISTA goes and says, give us more money. And the people in the Senate and the House chambers go, well, I don't know why not. And you give them more money and oh, shocker, it doesn't actually work. You need traditional conservatism to provide a vision of where to go, but you need the checks and balances of someone who understands that you can't go too far. And the Indiana GOP needs to learn this. Because Suzanne Crouch, I'm sorry, she's out of touch. I asked her after the straw poll, very directly, why do you think you got votes today? She said, it's because I talked about values and mental health. I'm sorry, guys. Mental health ain't electing the next Indiana governor. It's important. It shouldn't be state policy, by the way. That should be a legislative priority coming from the Indiana House and through deregulating the Indiana medical system. It shouldn't come through whatever else, by the way. And might I also add that Suzanne Crouch saying axe the tax, the income tax. Guys, the last eight Indiana Republican candidates for governor have talked about lowering taxes. That idea is about as fresh as bread used for a doorstop. And yet I also see people running for various offices who are literally just running to run and screaming at the trees. That ain't working either. Mike Braun has proven policy. So does Hill. And when they got in front of the crowd in Knightstown, Indiana, and in different ways, albeit Braun and Hill both said, scoreboard, here's what I've done. Here's how I flipped off the left. Here's how I've stopped the regulatory right, and I'm going to keep doing it. Voters are like, yeah, that's what I want. No one cares that Suzanne Crouch is a woman who's from Evansville, the boo-hoo, she was the agricultural czar, whatever. That doesn't identify with voters. Jamie Rettenauer getting up in front of everyone and screaming about how we're dancing on the devil with the dance floor. That doesn't identify, voters don't, that doesn't help me. Marrying competence and good governance with a passion for improving things for Hoosiers and embracing conservative values, that's what Hoosiers want because they don't want to have to worry about whether you're going to screw them over once you get into office, representatives around Fishers. And they also don't want people to go to office and just scream and rant and rave like that one 
I can't even remember the guy's name, some traditional conservative representative who ran for office and like yelled on the state house floor every single day and now is gone because he didn't do anything. Oh, but he, he really, he promoted some really good policy. Uh-huh, yeah, uh, what came of it? You need both. And until you actually come to that realization and you start ignoring all of the nonsense jibber-jabber from the establishment and the populist side who think that they, the other is the crazy one, when in reality they're both just hopelessly out of touch, you're going to keep this up until the Democrats get their game together and end up maneuvering more seats away from Republicans. I'm going to tell you a secret. The Indiana GOP is the laughing stock of the entire country. Do you know how I know? Because I go to Washington, D.C. and other states and I talk to their GOPs. We're the laughing stock of the country. We are hopelessly backward. And we're backward because of our own volition, our own doing. And so maybe if you actually want to keep a hand on the wheel establishment GOP, you need to give traditional conservatives a hand and a platform and invite them to the Lincoln Day dinners and all of the other useless traditions that we pretend are valuable to the average everyday Hoosier. Populists in the same way, read a book. Not every single conspiracy theory that you believe on Facebook is true, and you claiming that Kokomo has litter boxes and that's why we need to flip that school board doesn't work. Because guess what? The litter boxes weren't in Kokomo. You just embarrassed yourselves on a national stage, and now the entire school board is flipping the other way. You need to be competent and passionate. This isn't difficult. Speaking of competent and passionate, we're going to talk about Clarence Thomas, the man, the myth, the legend on the Supreme Court of the United States, who the left have accused of bribing and are now trying to bribe off of the Supreme Court. Stick around. You are listening to the Tony Kinnecast here on 93 WIBC. Go, 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 go. And on this the three, is the Tony Kinnecast on 93 WIBC. Welcome back to the Tony Kinnecast. So over the break, I actually got a text from an individual on one of the campaigns for governor. They're really unhappy with my comments. And uh, here's a secret. Uh, I'm incredibly transparent with my uh, people that listen and people that watch because, uh, first of all, it keeps it really easy for me to never have any skeletons in the closet. I don't have to worry about people combing through and finding things that I you know, said because someone else told me to or I was trying to be politic. Um, and number two, I also love that because... There is an element of, of knowing that you're over the target. So speaking of being completely over the target, Justice Clarence Thomas for the Supreme Court is a phenomenal individual. Um, he is a powerhouse because he reads and understands the Constitution. If you've ever read any of this man's court decisions, you know that this man has a legal mind that far surpasses anything I could begin to fathom as far as understanding the etymology and the way the founders wrote the text, citing additional correlational documents, the way that he crafts the legal argument not to be based on passion and emotion and the, the eggshell skull case, which is a legal fallacy in which uh, someone could possibly be hurt in relation to this, so we need to over-regulate and bubble wrap everything so they don't hurt themselves. It's amazing how he never has to refrain to those things. And the reason that comes into the national focus is because Clarence Thomas is in not trouble. Uh, he's basically coming under fire that there are soon some very big Supreme Court cases to be heard, such as things that will possibly get Jack Smith's entire case against Donald Trump at the in Washington, D.C. thrown out, uh, not to mention several other issues coming up that are going to change the fabric of how the Constitution is implemented across the country. And uh, it's really impressive because first of all there are newsweek opinion pieces out during february or black history month talking about how clarence thomas is not a black hero he's an enemy of black people 
And it's amazing how if there is a black individual on the right, how awful they are if they don't agree with the left. I will again refer you to uh, President Biden's comments during his 2020 election. If you don't vote for him, you ain't black End quote. And it's here we are again. Uh, the number of times I mean, can you remember? Go back and search what Condi Rice was called in the Bush administration. Good heavens. It was horrible. Well, now, John Oliver, and we don't have time to share the video with you. We'll post it later on the Tony Kinnacast Facebook page. John Oliver released a video trying to bribe Clarence Thomas from stepping down from the Supreme Court uh, by saying he would get a million dollars a year in cash and like this big, huge motor coach. And uh, he was listing all of the things that Clarence Thomas was horrible for. One of them was for rolling back federal regulation. Oh, the horror, the humanity. It just so happens that nominating an individual to the Supreme Court because of their merit, because of their brilliance, and because of their ability to interpret the Constitution correctly, and as the founders intended, is incredibly useful. And it turns out that we actually don't have to factor in the color of Clarence Thomas' skin as though he's part of some kind of lumped group that has innate merits and bad things based on how much melanin is in his skin. It's amazing what you can do when you treat people as people. And by the way, we haven't even begun to discuss the number of great things that he has done for black individuals around the country. For example, the scholarships and the charities that he's involved with, not to mention the numerous sets of writings that he and that individuals like Thomas Souls have done to encourage individual liberty and merit, which is at the end of the day, the greatest bolster for human liberty and prosperity that has ever been devised on the face of this earth. And that's encouraging because as long as men like that continue putting out great writings and great work, you'll continue to see excellent things in society and law. And that's the kind of stuff that shines through at the end of the day. That about brings us to the end of the Tony Kinnett cast. I will be in Nashville the rest of the week looking at all the shenanigans down there. A lot of great guest hosts we have lined up for you. Thanks for tuning in. You have been listening, as always, on 93 WIBC.